Follow along with us in God's good word as we take time to look through uh, the remainder of chapter one here this morning. And Paul has been writing to uh, this church in Philippi, this, these believers that he's had such a close relationship with, such a, uh, a blessing they've had um, growing together that Paul's been able to see this church come together there in Philippi. But now Paul is in prison in Rome and he's writing to them now to encourage them. And, and this whole letter is a letter where he's writing with just this joy of the Lord because of you know, all that God is doing and still doing. In fact, Paul said um, in verse you know, 16 to 18 where he's saying, even me being in prison is causing the, the gospel to go out in an even greater way to where there are those that are preaching the gospel and they're kind of doing it in spite of me. It's kind of like they're looking at me going, okay, Paul's out of the picture. Now it's our time to shine. Now we can really make a name for it. And they're preaching the gospel. And Paul's going, hey, it's all good because the gospel's still going out. Jesus is still being known. Jesus is still being promoted. And in that, Paul is joying and excited and, and, and thankful that that's happening. So even in a place of prison, Paul is joyful because he has this singleness of mind that it's all about Christ. And so we're going to be looking at that a little bit more so in this chapter, as we look at that singleness of mind that Paul has, where his life was just all about Christ. And he says in verse 19, hope you're with me there, Philippians 1, verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul begins to lay out now a couple of things that he's sort of relying on that he's very thankful for and putting his trust in. First of all, the prayer of others, okay? People's prayer. And he's also relying on the power of the Spirit. So people's prayer and then the power of the Spirit. That's what he says there. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer, he says. Now, Paul knew that the Philippians were earnestly praying for him because they've had this tight bond, this great union that they've enjoyed, this relationship that's very deep. This is a very affectionate letter that Paul is writing to the believers there. And he knows that in this, in this relationship and in this community that they are praying for him. And, and I think, you know, how often we can easily underestimate just that power of prayer. The, the blessing, the, the provision we have in prayer, how important it is to be praying for one another. And it's easy to kind of think, as these Philippian believers may have easily been tempted to think, this is Paul, after all. I mean, he's the one that should be praying for us. He's more spiritual. Than what, what is our little prayer going to do? Sometimes we can feel that way, thinking, uh, you want me to pray for that person? I mean, don't they already have it all together? What's my prayer going to do? And yet, Paul is recognizing that, how I need your prayer. In fact, Paul asked oftentimes for people to pray for him. Paul was humble in sense, knowing and recognizing that I'm dependent upon the prayers of others because he knows that God is at work and, and, and moving through the prayers of his people. James 5, 16 says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, you might be asking, well, what if they didn't pray? What happens if we don't pray? Are we, are we limiting the work of God? Then, well, listen, I don't want I don't, I don't to try to put that to the test and, and find out here. I know that we simply need to be people of prayer. 
And prayer is not so much about moving God in line with what we're wanting to see happen, where God's sitting here saying, well, you know what? I really had a great work that I want to do here, but you know, you didn't pray, and so I wasn't able to do it. That's not what God's doing. God's saying, man, it's through prayer that you begin to have a heart for me, and you begin to understand my heart, and you become more in line with that, you see. Remember Jesus' great prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, Lord, there be any other way. Father, there's another way that this work can be accomplished. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so in prayer, we, we come to that place where we're in agreement with God and we're lining ourselves up to God's will. And we're saying, Lord, we simply want your will to be done. And when we're praying that, well, then we can take hope because God's will is always going to be the best thing that we can be a part of and, and hoping for. And then he's relying on the power of the Spirit that was also so instrumental in Paul's life. So often we can tend to you know, find escape or victory or seek to find victory or help through our own strength in, in the means of the flesh, right? Where we think, okay, this is what needs to get done. I'm going to just go ahead and get that accomplished. I'm going to make that happen. And we fail to kind of give way to say, it's only through the power of the Spirit that this is really going to happen and take place in the, the right way. And so Paul is relying upon the supply, he says, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He was confident that, that this support and strength that was at work in him and for him, he says, will turn out for my deliverance. Confidence will turn out for my deliverance. Now the question has been, what deliverance is Paul speaking of? Because that word deliverance is the Greek word soteria, where we get our English word uh, salvation, or where that word salvation derives from. And so that word deliverance, soteria, can, can mean safety, Paul could be speaking of his hopeful release from prison. That word can mean salvation as in eternity in heaven, that final kind of salvation of being with Jesus. But the word can also mean health and general well-being. It's as though Paul is saying, whatever happens to me, I believe God is going to bring me through to a better outcome, to my deliverance, to my well-being in a sense. And we see in verse 20 that Paul didn't have any guarantee of his release. Rather, he saw that he could very well die, right? That's what he says at the end of, of verse 20. Now also Christ will be magnified in body, whether by life or by death. So Paul didn't have any kind of false hope or guarantee that his life would continue on. He's like, whatever happens, I know it's going to be for my deliverance, for my general well-being, that it's going to be a, a plus. It's going to be a good thing because God's going to be at work. And it's all going to be to the glory of God. This is what Paul is stating here. Interesting, that word for expectation, beginning of verse 20, according to my earnest expectation. That word expectation speaks of the eager and intense look, which turns away from all else so as to focus on the one object of desire. It's that gaze that says, I got nothing else in my sights except that one object of desire. And Paul had that unwavering hope, that confident expectation that nothing would cause him to be ashamed in standing for the gospel. He'd say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So whatever may happen to him, he knows that God would never leave him or betray him. He knows that whatever happens to him, imprisonment or execution or freedom or slavery, Christ would be made known through his life. And for Paul, that was all that mattered. Like whatever my situation or circumstances might be, 
If God is being glorified and magnified in my life, so be it. That's what it's all about. This is what Paul's attitude and heart is, that singleness of mind, that expectation that he had. That's a singleness of mind. Now you might ask, what, what really is the single mind? What does that really mean? It's the attitude that says it makes no difference what happens to me just as long as Christ is glorified and the gospel is being shared with others. Paul rejoiced in spite of his circumstances because he saw his circumstances were strengthening that fellowship of the gospel with one another. It was promoting the furtherance of the gospel. Paul would rejoice in all these things because he saw God's work unfolding and happening even in the midst of being in prison. This didn't limit God. God's work was going out in, in an even greater way to where Paul could say, I rejoice in that. If my being in prison is accomplishing something like that in a greater way, then so be it because it's not about me. That's a singleness of mind. Paul had so filled his mind with Christ that there wasn't really much room for anything else to bombard him with fear or worry or questions about the faithfulness of God. I've read that the human mind cannot think of two things at once. You cannot be thinking about the taxes you have to pay while you're thinking about a nice banana split that you want to put down, right? I believe that to be very true, and some of you wives will know that to be very true with your husbands who, you know, cannot multitask and think about two things at once. In fact, my wife often tells me there's two things that are very important in our relationship. First of all, that you pay attention to me when I'm talking to you. And secondly, she always says, um, oh, what was that now? The second thing, it was... <laughs> It was, I think, I think it was really good. Um, anyways, listen, I can't remember right now, but you know that to be true. You get the idea we're typically a one-thought kind of people. But the key, the key is to make that one thought the right thought. See, you cannot be thinking about your problems in the same moment that you're thinking about Jesus Christ. That is what Paul knew. He knew it theoretically, and he knew it very practically. Consequently, he had filled his mind with Christ that that was his sole focus and heart's desire was to serve him and to glorify him. In fact, the first chapter alone, you see that to be very evident, the name Christ or Jesus Christ is mentioned 17 times here. That's a whole lot of Christ. When you are that filled with Christ, there's not a lot of room for other things like complaining or bitterness or grumbling. Just so focused on Christ. Paul's attitude and outlook was that whatever happened, he would not be ashamed if he's living for Christ, then all that happens is in accordance with the will of God. And there's no shame in the life that's being lived for Christ and is all about Christ. Paul wanted nothing more than to live full for Christ. And if he did, he knew that there'd be nothing to be ashamed of whether he lived or died. Christ would be magnified, he says, in the midst of that. Christ would be glorified. And to Paul, that made it all worth it. That's that singleness of mind. Notice I mean, it, he encapsulates this so well in verse 21. This is one of those verses that you want to have a highlight in your Bible. You want to underline. You want to circle it. You want to stamp that on your forehead, put that on the bathroom mirror. You want to keep this before you because this is what it's all about. Paul says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about that. That was the secret of Paul's joy right here. He said, for me, my life is all about Christ. Everybody needs to be able to fill in that blank for the life to say, for to me to live is blank. And whatever you fill that blank in with becomes indicative of that prominent passion and pursuit of your life. 
For some it might be, for to me to live is having a nice car or getting married or, you know, having a, a good job. That's what's really life for me. But then death is the end of all those things. There's no gain, there's no benefit. It's, it's short-lived in a sense. So many people are living for, living for pleasure or popularity, power, prestige, prosperity perhaps. And they live to soak up every bit of this life fearing that this is all that there is. You gotta take it all in as much as I can because when I die, that's it. But not for Paul. That's not the way Paul was living. He knew that the things of this world were utterly worthless. We're gonna see that in chapter three. His life was all about Christ. Jesus being the author and the very giver of life and living for and in Christ was the thrilling life. For Paul, this is what really made life exciting was when he could say, I'm abandoning all other things and my life is Christ. For me to live, I think Paul's kind of saying, man, to live it up, to really enjoy this life. For me to live it up, it's all about Christ. This is the true, adventurous, joyful life to live. And the icing on the cake was knowing that you don't have to fear death. Because death then ushers the believer into eternal life and more so life with Christ face to face and free from sin. This is what Paul was looking forward to. He says, I want to be with Christ. And I'm going to make the most of it right now by living for Christ. See, Paul was never freed from prison and he perhaps, let's say, succumbed to Nero's execution. Paul realized, guess what? I'm going to be better off. I'm going to be better off. For to me, to live is not to try to spare my life or make things comfortable for me. For to me, to live is Christ. And if I'm living for Christ, then it means that my death is going to be to my gain. Because then I'm going to see him face to face. You see, if you're not ready to die, then you're not ready to truly live. If you're not ready to die, then you're not ready to truly live. Jesus said as much in a verse that I love to, I, I love to quote because this has kind of been like my life verse and I think it's for every believer to keep before them and make that almost that life verse for them. When he, Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? Dying to self not making your life about you. He goes on to say, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Jesus puts it so clearly to us right there. Are you living to try to save your life, to try to make your life better? Are you trying to put things around you to have a comfortable life? Jesus says, listen, if you want to follow me, it's going to require dying. But it's in dying that you will truly live. This is what we need to have before us because we live in a culture and a world that's all about, man, you've got, to, you've got to put things around your life that are really going to make you happy. You've got to look out for number one. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to really seek to, to bless you. Jesus says, oh, man, that's backwards thinking. Because the life that's truly going to be filled with joy and the life worth living is the life that's died to self and is living in and for Christ. 
And Paul's not speaking from a, a defeatist attitude here. He's not saying, ah, oh, there's just no hope for me. Guys, I'd just be better off dead. That would be better for me. That's not what Paul's attitude is. He's not coming from a place of despair. He's coming from a place of joy. He knew that if things did end in him being executed, then he would be with Christ. And for Paul, that's a win-win situation. For to me to live is Christ. So everything I'm about right now, it's all about Christ. And if I end up dying because I've lived so fully for Christ that I'm gonna be with him, it's, it, it moves from good life to better life. For Paul, this is win-win stuff we're talking about here. So we're not looking at some kind of escapism because Paul's gonna go on in the next verse here to share where his focus really is at. Look at what we read in verse 22. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul is saying, if I continue on here, it's going to be more profitable to others. Right into the Philippian church, he says, my life, my my." still continue on this life is going to be more beneficial for you. It's not just crying out, I want to die. No, he's saying, I'm not afraid to die. But in the meantime, if my life can count and be fruitful to others, then so be it. And he's in a state of turmoil now, kind of knowing the value of continuing on this life and having further fruit in serving and ministering to others but that also meant delaying his being united to Christ. That's what Paul really wanted. He said, man, I want to be doing that, but then I also know that God's called me to serve others and that there's great benefit in that as well. He's, he's kind of, as he says, hard-pressed between the two. There's a real tension that Paul was trying to sort out. Now, I've I felt tension before. Maybe many of you have. You know, You feel tension over different things you got to decide every time I go to an ice cream place. And I got to decide over like, bubblegum ice cream or the cotton candy ice cream. There's real tension. I'm struggling. I'm like between a hard press here on, on both sides. But this is a different kind of tension that Paul's feeling. This isn't, you know, like we oftentimes think of being stuck between a rock and a hard place, which kind of means you've got kind of an unfortunate situation and then an even more unfortunate situation over here. This is not what Paul's saying. He's not between a rock and a hard place. He's hard pressed because he's going, man, I've got this opportunity here that is going to be so awesome and so so blessing, but then I got this opportunity here that if I die, I get to be with Christ. That's going to be even more wonderful. Man, if it was up to me, it, that's a difficult choice here. He's hard-pressed. He's got a desire to depart and be with Christ, but he understands that it's more beneficial for him to remain and continue to serve others. And I want you to see the big picture in what Paul is saying here. He's basically saying, what I would love, what I love more than anything else is to be with Jesus, but I'm willing to give up what I would want so that I can be a, a greater blessing in your life. Think about Paul's attitude here. He's truly living a, 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 in a way where he's, he died himself. He's saying, here's what I would choose and want, but I'm willing to give that up to better serve others. That's a life that's been so impacted by the gospel and changed through Jesus Christ. He didn't live for himself or his own pleasures. His life was Christ. His life was, for to me to live is Christ. That's who, what his life was all about. He's ready to keep serving him and by serving others, seek to be a blessing 
in the way that he lived. That's the way that Paul could be so joyful in all these things. He's not focused on himself. He's got his sights fixed on Jesus Christ and on being a blessing to others. That's that acronym we saw a few weeks ago for joy, right? Jesus, others, and then you, as it's commonly said. But I just like, I just like to take, us, take the you right out of there. Just put the Y for Yahweh or something. Just go right back to God. Because I don't want to even be about us, right? Focus, the, the key to joy is Jesus, others, and then just keeping it about Yahweh, God. Because when we're focused on self, when our life is about our own desires and pleasures, there's not going to be a lot of joy in that because you're going to quickly realize that not all things are going to line up with how you want it to be. And you're going to get frustrated, you're going to get bitter, you're going to be grumbling. But the life that's so abandoned to self and said, Jesus, it's all about you and your glory. You be magnified in me. And you're going to be magnified more greatly in me when I give myself to serve others, to glorify you. That's when you're going to experience true and lasting joy that's not dependent upon your circumstances. Now, before moving on, I want to draw your attention to something Paul says in verse 23 there. Notice what he says, having a desire to depart and be with Christ. Now, there are some people that like to kind of talk about, oh, when we die, we just kind of move into the soul sleep, you know? It's just this kind of nothingness. That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, oh, I have a desire to depart and move into just some eternal rest where I'm just soul sleeping. That's not what Paul says. He says, I have a desire to depart and to do what? To be with Christ. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. See, that word depart is an interesting word. It's a Greek word, analio, and it means to unloose or to undo. To unloose or undo. It was used to speak of a ship being unmoored from harbor and heading out to the open seas. Paul was looking forward to being free to sail the heaven, heaven shores. It also spoke of taking down a tent to break camp. Interestingly, Paul spoke of our body as being a tent. 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. See, tents are never meant to be permanent dwelling places, are they? Oh, you like to get away camping, but you're thankful that you got a home to go back to, aren't you? You're not looking to go, man, this tent is really comfortable. Why don't we set this up at in our front lawn at home and just live in this for a while. Nobody's doing that, right? In fact, if you're like me, you're like, I want to leave this tent at the campsite. I don't want to see this thing again. I'm leaving this behind. I don't want any more to do with that. It's, it's, not, it's not made to be permanent. It's temporal. And so to our bodies, Paul is saying, there's going to be a time when we're going to depart or unloose. We're going to tear down this tent and we're going to receive a building that's made from God that's fit for eternity, our permanent home. That's what Paul was looking forward here too. As much as Paul was looking forward to his homecoming, he knew that the Lord still had a greater purpose for him in the here and now. And Paul had a confidence that there was still more work to be done. Look at what he says here in verse 25. He says, And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. How did Paul have such a confidence that he would remain and, and then go and be with them and see them? It, perhaps he received some kind of revelation from God. 
Maybe he was kind of reading the room and seeing, hearing from the, the prison guards that were coming in and being chained to him that, you know, it was just a matter of time that Paul was going to be released. We don't know exactly. But uh, reading through, you know, um, early church fathers, uh, we believe that Paul was released from this imprisonment for a time where he continued on some of his missionary journeys, believing uh, that he actually went back to Macedonia and visited the people back in Philippi before he was arrested again and brought back to Rome where he'd be put in prison again and then he eventually was executed at the hands of Nero in 68 AD. So we believe that Paul did have that opportunity like he says here. Man, I'm confident I'm going to come and see you again. And notice, he's so confident that his coming to them there in Philippi would incite just a lot of joy and rejoicing. Paul wasn't focused on his own comfort and joy. His desire was to see this joy manifested in others, and in that, he could rejoice. That was the relationship that Paul had with so many. What kind of relationships do you have with the body of Christ? What, what kind of response do you incite in others? When people see you coming, are they responding with, oh, joy? Or are they saying, oh, boy, pretend you didn't see him. Quick, duck out of the way, right? Like, are people running or are they glad to be around you? Are they excited? Do you bring that kind of attitude of joy when you're with other people? I'll tell you this much. When you're living like Paul did where he says, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain, man, you're going to be living a way that people want to be hanging out with you because you're going to be so filled with Christ that people are going to be saying, Man, I love being around that person. They're filled with such joy, such a, a focus on the Lord that is just contagious for us. So here's what Paul says in verse 27. He gets into some important instruction here. He says in verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, and with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's a pretty big request right there, isn't it? Paul says, I want you to conduct, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You might look at that and go, oh my goodness, is that even possible? That's a pretty tall order, we might think, but it need not be. The word for conduct is the Greek word, politiomai, and it means literally to live as a citizen. To live as a citizen. That word was especially appropriate to use in a letter to people who took great pride in their Roman citizenship. The Philippian Christians, however, were also citizens of a more important kingdom, a heavenly one. As such, they needed to stand firm in one spirit. Philip was a colony of Rome in Macedonia, and the church was a colony of heaven in Philippi. See, to live as citizens of heaven meant that they have a common desire to be in line with their king. King of kings, Lord Jesus. And to do so requires standing fast in one spirit. In other words, you're seeking God's will and not your own. You're looking to be led by the Holy Spirit and not by your own desires or pleasures. Saying, I want to stand fast in one spirit. I want to have that, that commonality with others to say it's all about Jesus here. And conduct worthy the gospel of Christ is shown by living in unity with one another, with one mind. You see that there, right? With one mind, striving together. Now, oftentimes, we're striving to kind of figure out whose mind is going to win out. 
Let's follow my mind. I like the way that I think. I like my, my ideas here. Let my mind, and we strive to have our minds win up, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He's talking about the mind of Christ. In fact, Paul's going to move into chapter 2, which we'll get into next week, to really discuss that and break that down even more, having the mind of Christ. What does that look like? But this is what Paul's getting at. Well, that you might have the mind of Christ. And when you are standing fast in one spirit and you have that same mind, that begins to resemble this conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word striving speaks of contending. Too often we're contending with one another. Isn't it been such a bad testimony in the world when people see the church just, you know, infighting, quarreling, church splittings and stuff, and people are going, man, why, why is that happening? That seems like an awful lot of, of flesh and selfishness going on. And this should not be the case. Too often we're fighting over non-essential things, squabbling over stuff that's really not important in the big picture. See, the key to living worthy of the gospel is to have a mind that is all about Christ, as Paul is exemplifying for us here in this chapter. A mind that's all about Christ. Keep him the main thing. Don't let divisions occur over non-essential things. This is an increasingly challenging thing to see happen in this day that we live in where the world is just so crazy with so many things that are going on and differences of views and, and opinions over these things that can become so isolating and divisive, sadly. I'm sure you've all seen this happen in this past year where people have different positions and opinions on different things and it only creates further division and isolation where people are saying, I don't know if I fit with that thinking or understanding. I don't know if I really belong there. Listen, I am looking forward to the church coming back together. I am longing for that day. But when that day happens, it's, it, things are gonna look very different. The church is going to look different. And, and we're going to be coming back together with people that have been sitting on very different ideas. You're going to have people that are saying, I believed it was uh, right for us to stay home. And then you're going to be mingling with people that are saying, I believe it was right that we gather together. That's what we need to do. You're going to have people coming together who have been vaccinated, mingling with those people that are saying, I'm not too sure about the vaccination yet. I'm holding off. And you're going to have these people that are coming together from different opinions and, and, and different positions that they've got. And we can begin to make those positions and opinions the issue and say, oh, this is what I really think is important. This is what I think we need to be doing. You need to be careful with it. And, and we see that happening even today where people are so quick to kind of share their view about stuff and yet do so in a way where it's like we're kind of, maybe pushing others away that hold a different view. You know, Paul had to deal with the same kind of stuff in the early church as, as he saw Jews and Gentiles coming together, people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different, different beliefs, but yet finding common ground in Jesus Christ. And he had to write in Galatians 3.28, he said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, 
we are all one in Christ Jesus. I think if Paul was writing that today, he would have to add, there is neither vaccinated or unvaccinated. There is neither masked nor unmasked. We are all one in Christ. And we need to make sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing, and that is Jesus Christ in all that we're saying, in all that we're doing, in how we're conducting ourselves, that we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we do so by coming together, standing in one spirit, having the same mind. That's the mind of Christ. And keeping it all about him. I implore you, keep it about him. We're going to see people coming together. And I hope that day is coming soon. All of you watching at home, I miss you guys. I can't wait till we are back together again. And I want us all to come together in grace and in love and put all differences of views aside and say, we stand together in Christ. That's the common ground that we have. And that's what it's all about. This is what living in a manner worthy of the gospel looks like. It looks like dying with Christ to oneself and being raised in Christ to walk in the newness of life with our brothers and sisters. It means living grace-filled lives that grant patience and mercy and gentleness for the spiritual journeys of others and a respect for the differences and idiosyncrasies we all bring to the Lord's table because the ground is level at the cross. And I'll tell you, I've got some strong views. I've got some views that I would love to share with you, but I also recognize they're really not the essential things that we as a church need to be about. If you want to hear them, I'll share them with you. He doesn't like him, so he's going to go, but no, I'm just kidding. So we all have different views. And I'm happy to talk about them, but I also recognize that I don't need to talk about them with, with, with people because it's only going to cause people to be divided or isolated, pushed away. Now, when we keep Jesus, what it's all about, we're united together. We do stand strong, and we stand strong in the spirit, in one mind. We stand strong in Christ when it's all about him. So let's pray that we can get back together soon. Church, you're missed. We are a fraction of what we typically are. I'm grateful that we're here, but I pray and trust that that day will come very soon. And when it does, that we will experience the blessed unity. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians, does in Ephesians 4, when he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, let's finish this chapter up here. Verse 28 says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are going, <laughs> I hope we just leave these verses out here. I don't want to talk about suffering. I don't really like that too much. But understand something Paul is saying here. Don't be terrified by your adversaries. Standing for Christ is going to bring opposition. Jesus said as much. Don't think you're doing something wrong when opposition comes. Understand, probably you're doing something right. 
when the opposition of the world comes because that's what's going to happen when you stand for Christ, when you make your life all about Christ. But here's what Paul is saying. Man, don't be terrified. Don't be terrified because, you see, the tactic of the enemy is to instill fear and doubt into your mind. But when you stand strong and say, I've got nothing to fear. I've got nothing to worry about. Nothing to doubt in. I've got faith in the Lord and I'm trusting him. Suddenly the enemy goes, oh my goodness, my really only weapon is rendered useless up against that. And they've got nothing. And they begin to flee. That's what James says. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Stand strong. Don't be terrified. Because all he can do is throw fear into you. And understand that the enemy can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. God's in control, ultimately. And when we stand strong, we're reminded, as Paul says, but to you of salvation and that from God. When we stand strong, we recognize God's with us. God's upholding us. God's strengthening us. Paul lets his readers know that they don't need to question God if and when they experience persecution or suffering. In fact, notice how Paul writes this. He says there, in verse, um, uh, verse 29, for to you it has been granted, not only, or granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Oh, thank you for that. That's so wonderful. It's been granted to us to suffer. Usually when you're granted something, it's like a, a nice beneficial thing, right? But we think granted to suffer for his sake? What's the point of that? We, we don't typically like suffering we're not praying lord could you grant me a little bit more suffering please i'm i'm kind of been a little bit dry here that's we're not praying for that stuff are we we're like lord keep me from this but understand here there's a benefit that happens for us in fact jesus said in matthew chapter 5 verse 10 and 12 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know when he says blessed are you? That's that word for happy. And the whole book of Philippians is not just about happiness, it's about joy. Jesus says, man, you're gonna be blessed. You're gonna be happy. You're gonna be, you're gonna be filled with joy when you understand that even in the midst of persecution, it's serving a greater good. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. God's doing a work in the midst of that. And if they underwent the same conflict Paul had, it'd be for the purpose of experiencing the same joy that Paul had in the midst of it. Paul's gonna talk about this fellowship of suffering in Philippians 3. We'll get to that when we cover that chapter. But there's a great blessing that comes when we endure times of suffering because we have the privilege and the opportunity of seeing God do a work through that for our good and the benefit of others. Here's some benefits that do come from suffering. It takes our eyes off of earthly comforts. That's oftentimes needed. It weeds out superficial believers. It strengthens the faith of those who endure. And it serves as an example to others who may follow us. When we suffer for our faith, it doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. In fact, the opposite is often true. It verifies that we have been faithful. So use suffering to build your character. Don't resent it or let it tear you down. There's a purpose in our suffering. The Bible says oftentimes rejoice 
when you experience these things. Count it all joy when you suffer various things, when you go through trials. Count it all joy. Because know that God uses those things to do a work in us and to further his work through us. And if we're truly saying to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, then we're okay with whatever methods God uses for Christ to be evident in our lives and for Christ to be put on display. And he's often put on display in a greater way through our suffering. We've seen that in our, in our recent days with various pastors that have had to take a stand very boldly, been an example to others, but it's been able to put Jesus on greater display. Some of you might think, I don't know if I'm cut for that. I don't know if I'm ready for suffering. I love what Corey Ten Boom said. She said, when I was a little girl, I went to my father and said, Daddy, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Well, tell me, said the father, when you take a train trip to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy. She said, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That's right, her father said. And so it is with God's strength. Our Father in heaven knows when you'll need the strength to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. He will supply all you need just in time. And that's the confidence we can have, that the Lord will give us the strength to endure suffering and to know that there's a greater good coming from it. Let's be confident in those things. Let's make our life truly about Christ in all that we do. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this example we see in the life of Paul and, and for this testimony where he could truly say to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Lord, and I, I confess how, how far away from that I, I often am and I want to increasingly grow in that place where I can say it's not about me. I don't want my life to be about my own comforts and pleasures. I want my life to be about Christ, to live for him, to see him glorified and magnified in my life to the point where even in death, I can say it's even better. It will all be worth it. Lord, strengthen us to live our lives that way. Strengthen us to be able to say, my life is all about Christ. May you shine brightly in us and through us. I pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord. In these days we live, to have courage and boldness, to stand strong for you, knowing that that's often going to bring suffering. It's gonna bring opposition. But may we take heart and be filled with joy in the fact that you're accomplishing your work all through it. Accomplishing your work in us, and you're carrying out your work through us, even in the midst of suffering. So may we be filled with strength and courage here today by your spirit. And may we as a body of Christ here seek to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Having a unity, same heart, same mind. That would love others and that would just continue make, to make you the main thing here. So help us in that, we pray. Amen. If you're here today, 
or maybe you're watching online and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're looking at your life going, if I die, can I truly say it's gain, it's for the better? Do I know where I'm going when I die? If you don't have that assurance today, understand that that can turn around in a heartbeat, that you can know where you're going when you die. And that is simply through putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came to this world to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for your sin. It's your sin that kept you away from God, separated you from God, that gave us no hope in death. But by putting our faith in Jesus, in the work he did for us, dying on a cross, forgiving us of our sin, he died, he rose again, secure life and life eternally. By putting your faith in him, you can know and have assurance that when you die, you're going to be with Jesus. You're going to be in heaven for all of eternity with him because that's why he came to die. That's why he rose again is to secure life for you, forgiveness of sin. But you need that forgiveness of sin. You can't do that on your own. It's you putting your faith in Jesus. And if you're here today or listening online, I encourage you to call it to Jesus, to confess your sin, to turn from them and say, I need you, Jesus. Come into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. I want to live for you and in you. The Bible says, when you give your life to Jesus, you become a born-again new creation. Everything has passed away. All the old things have passed away. You become new in him, and you have the assurance of eternal life. If you need that today, would you call it to Jesus? Simply pray a simple prayer saying, I confess I'm a sinner. I confess I'm in need of you, Jesus. Come into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Let me live for you. I invite you in. And when you pray that, you become a child of God. And if you've done that today, would you come and talk to me or email us at the church here and let us know because we'd love to be in touch with you and and, uh, send you some more information about this new life in Christ, all right? Worship team, are you guys around? Can we close with a song here? I know we've gone a little bit late late here today, um, but that's the blessing of being the 1130 service. <laughs> so let's stand together and let's close um, with this song here.